Welcome to episode 325 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, biohacker, author of What, When, Wine, and creator of the supplement line Avalon X. And I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Spina, sports nutrition specialist, author of Keto Essentials, and creator of the Tone Breath Ketone Analyzer and Tone Lux Red Light Therapy Panels. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and ketogenicgirl.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this show do not constitute medical advice or treatment. To be featured on the show, email us your questions to questions at ifpodcast.com. We would love to hear from you. So pour yourself a mug of black coffee, a cup of tea, or even a glass of wine if it's that time and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi friends, I'm about to tell you how to get my favorite electrolytes for free plus special announcement, Element's new chocolate medley is here. So when you think electrolytes, you might think summer and hot times and needing to stay hydrated. But did you know that hydration is actually super important in cold weather as well? There's an idea out there that cold weather reduces our hydration needs. That's not true. So in the cold, two main things can actually increase our metabolic rate. You may be working harder, tramping through the snow, and you can be wearing cumbersome winter clothing that can actually raise your energy needs by 10 to 20%. And as your metabolic rate raises, your sweat rate raises, and you need to replace those fluids with electrolytes. You also lose more water when it's cold through your breath. That's because cold temperatures contain significantly less water than hot temperatures, AKA it's drier outside. When you breathe in that cold, dry air, your respiratory system actually acts like a humidifier so that your body can be warm and humid like it likes to be. Of course, that drains your hydration reserves as well. One study actually found that respiratory water loss after a full day of activity nearly doubled at freezing temperatures compared to the 70s. On top of that, when you're cold, you actually become less thirsty, possibly from blood vessel constrictions in the cold, which can trick the body into thinking the blood volume is higher than it is. In other words, it's cold out there. You probably need hydration and electrolytes are so key for all of these cellular processes in your body, all of your energy production. It all requires electrolytes, but it can be hard to find electrolytes, which are clean, without unnecessary fillers, and which you can feel good about drinking. That's why I love Element. There's a reason I'm obsessed with it. There's a reason all you guys are as well. And like I said, I'm so excited because Element's new chocolate medley is here featuring chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. And this is a limited time, so you definitely want to stock up on these now. Plus, you can get a free gift with purchase when you purchase that chocolate medley or other Element electrolytes. That's right. You can get a free sample pack, eight single serving packets for free with any Element order. It's a great way to try all eight flavors or share Element with a salty friend. You can get yours at drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast. That's drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast. By the way, those chocolates in that chocolate medley make delicious hot chocolates. And of course, as always, Element has a no questions asked refund, so you have nothing to lose. So go to drinklmnt.com slash podcast to get your free electrolytes.
One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumer consumers from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. This is episode number 325, and we have a special episode today. I am not just here with my fabulous co-host, Vanessa Spina, but we have a very special guest on the show. This is actually the first guest that Vanessa and I have had together, so we are very excited. We're here with Dr. Paul Arciero, and so here is the backstory leading up to this conversation Vanessa had actually been reading and sharing Dr. Arciero's work for quite a while, and she shared a study on her Instagram. It published back in December of 2022 called Intermittent Fasting and Protein Pacing, 
are superior to caloric restriction for weight and visceral fat loss. And she posted about this, was talking all about it. So then I read it and dove deep into it. And so then we were talking about it on this show. And I thought, why not just reach out to the head researcher and see if maybe he would entertain some of our crazy questions because we had some, we were first of all, just so excited about the study. And second of all, had quite a few questions about the setup and all of that. And Dr. Arciero was so kind. He responded to our emails. He um, actually already went on Vanessa's show, the Optimal Protein Podcast, and he was open to coming on this show, which was fabulous. And I didn't realize at the time he also, his work expands way beyond the like the window that I had seen because my first exposure was reading this one study. So then I dive deep into, I mean, not all of his studies because he has over over 70 peer-reviewed publications. So (laughs) I didn't read all of them, but I read quite a few of them. And he also has an incredible book called The Protein Pacing Diet. And I didn't know exactly what to expect when I started reading it. I mean, I figured it would be about protein pacing, but friends, it dives into so many things. So the entire concept of human metabolism, specifically how protein relates to it and all the nuances you could ever want to know about protein. Also, you know, caloric restriction, intermittent fasting, the importance of diet quality, exercise, and then beyond that, a lot of really powerful work on mindset, actually. I, I just loved it. It's really funny, Paul. I was reading it and sending Vanessa screenshots of the book because your vibe in the book is like the vibe of Vanessa and I. Like, like, like we're, I don't know, we're like into the, um, it was just really beautiful. Like your book was very beautiful and motivating and very like high spirit. So we're just so honored to have you here today. So thank you so much for being here. Wow, that was one of the the best intros I've ever had, Melanie. Thank you. That was really cool. You you brought you brought a word to mind, Zen. You know, I yeah, it's interesting. Research sometimes can be obviously very cold and unfamiliar to a lot of people just because it's hard for a lot of people to relate to when you know, whenever they start to see statistics and numbers and you know, science, you know, they kind of run. And so I really appreciate those words. Those mean a lot to me because I want to try to make science more comfortable and harmonic with everyone's life. I think there's such a disconnect with science and research with people's habiting of this world. And so, yeah, no, that was awesome. That was wonderful. That's my goal. So I appreciate the shout out to my book. I'm interested to know, you know, I wrote those, I wrote two books, The Protein Pacing Diet and then The Prize Life. And The Prize Life was kind of the shorter shorter version of The Protein Pacing Diet. So I'm not sure which one you have your hands on. I read The Protein Pacing Diet. Which one did you do first? That was the one, Protein Pacing Diet. And then The Prize Life was kind of just a revised version of it. But yeah. So, well, thanks again for having me. And it's always a joy for me to be able to share my research because oftentimes as a scientist, our research is only shared with like-minded scientists <laughs> and, you know, it doesn't get into the, the eyes and ears and minds and, and souls of, you know, the world that needs it. And so I'm really grateful for you having me on. 
We are grateful for you because this is exactly, I think, what the world needs. You just said all of it just now, but I mean, there's just so much fascinating information happening in the science world. And I think it can be often hard to bridge the gap between that world and all of the people not in that world. And that's one reason I love podcasting, for example, it's because we can do awesome interviews like this and, you know, bring your work to our audience. I'll have to check out the new version of the book. And so a little bit about your bio for listeners. So we just learned this. Congratulations to Paul. So he was slash still is the professor in the Department of Health and Human Physiological Sciences at Skidmore College. He actually just accepted a position as well at the University of Pittsburgh in the Department of Sports Medicine and Nutrition with tenure, which is super cool. Like I said, you've had over 70 peer-reviewed publications on PubMed, cited over 6,765 times. Your research has been all over the place, BBC News, WebMD, The Today Show, USA Today, Time, all the places. So we are very, very honored to have you here. A question to start things off. So like we were just talking about, you really bring the human perspective. And I like that you use that word Zen to everything that you're doing. So growing up, like, did you always want to be a scientist? Yeah. What led you to what you're doing today? That's a great question to start with, because People that know me know that I was on the opposite end of a studious young boy and on his way to becoming a scientist. Yeah, I didn't I didn't fare too well in school. School was was a really rough part of my life growing up. I, I wasn't a good student at all. I was actually asked to stay back in the third grade. So I struggled with school, with learning. And so what I did was I dove into my physical body just because I was a decent athlete and that seemed to allow me to find an identity as a young boy, because otherwise I would have had literally nothing in terms of identifying as, as something worthwhile. And so thank goodness that at least from a physical standpoint, I was able to. And so as it turned out, I was good enough in college to get a, a full tennis scholarship. But then, you know, reality set in once again when I was in college and I ended up dropping out just because, well, it was either you know, me being asked to leave or me leaving on my own. <laughs> and, and so I ended up leaving and going over to Europe and playing some tennis, professional level tennis and became very homesick. I was 19 at the time. So I, I tried my, my first try in college, didn't go so well. And then when I was over there playing tennis, thinking that this was one way to help get myself back together, I just became extremely homesick. And despite having some actually pretty good success. And so when I returned home, I, I knew there was only one thing I needed to go back to, and that was trying to see how well I could stay in school and, and see if something stuck this time. And fortunately, I was really into nutrition and fitness because I wanted to become a better tennis player. When I did return back to college, I realized that those two things were actually majors in college, exercise, physiology, and nutrition. And so that just started my path. And so it was really just born out of my own personal need to find an identity. And, and so that's how my path to becoming a, a scientist in the field of nutrition and exercise physiology started. Wow, that's a very unconventional path, I feel. 
So when you first got into that, because there's so many topics in the world of nutrition and there's so much controversy and, you know, different opinions, what has your experience been like in that world? Because, you know, you focus so much on the the power of protein. Did it take a while to come to that thesis or have your thoughts oscillated a lot throughout your journey? Just wondering what that was all like. It was actually quite interesting. So when I was over in Europe, I was becoming much more aware of the connection between how I nourished my body and how I performed. And so I started to take on some eating behaviors that I felt were more beneficial to my performance. And one was just eating, I, I started to eat less meat, believe it or not, and more plant-based foods. And that, that seemed to help, but I don't know if it was truly that beneficial for me. So when I did return back to, to college and university, I, I became a vegetarian. And because I started reading the scientific literature, and this was back in the early 80s, mid 80s, and most of the science back then published research on vegetarians showed that they weighed less, they had less risk for cardiovascular and metabolic disease, heart disease and diabetes. And so I said, ah, this could be, you know, the way to do it. So by the time I graduated and and started graduate school, I asked my professor at the time, my advisor, could I test vegetarians and to see what their metabolism was like, because it seemed to influence so much of their health. And that's what I did. I conducted my first study at Purdue University with Seventh-day Adventists, because they follow a very somewhat strict vegetarian diet. And because I was a vegetarian, I I could relate to them. And what I found from that study was fascinating. I fed both vegetarians myself included, and non-vegetarians, a standardized meal. And it was a liquid protein meal at the time. It was a company called Sustical. And it was one of those just meal replacements that they used primarily in the healthcare setting, hospital setting for patients that needed high quality nutrition. So it wasn't the best in terms of high quality, but it had some protein. What I found was very interesting. It was a a dairy animal-based protein, and I wasn't paying attention to that necessarily. But what we found was that when the group of vegetarians, myself included, consumed that meal with slightly higher protein than a typical normal meal would have, they they hung on to those calories and they had a a lower, a significantly lower postprandial thermogenic response. That's a fancy word for they burned less, we burned less calories after we ate that meal. And it was the same relative amount. So everyone got the same relative amount based on their body weight. So there was no difference in the, the quantity that people were consuming. Whereas when the omnivores consume the meal, they were burning those calories much more, I get were much less efficiently. They were just expending. They had a much higher metabolic rate. So it kind of contradicted what our hypothesis was. We thought that, okay, these vegetarians weigh less. Maybe they burn more calories after they eat. And in fact, we found the opposite. They were actually burning much less so what was the reason for that? What it ended, uh, what we ended up following, finding based on some of the other data that we collected, it was probably due to them not being accustomed to consuming that much protein at a serving. And so the body sensed this higher amount of protein in this meal challenge we gave them. 
as a vegetarian and it decided to hold on to those calories because it knew it was a very vital nutrient. And we know that protein in Greek stands for proteos, means primary, vital. And so as it turns out, because vegetarians in general consume less protein, especially high quality protein, when they are faced with a meal that contains more protein and higher quality protein, their body makes the decision to hold on to those calories and not burn them and to preserve those. And so that was my first kind of eye-opening, you know, research experience early on in my career where I found that, wow, you know, the quality of what we consume makes all the difference in the world. In fact, much less of our health is determined by controlling or managing the total number of calories we consume. The, the, the vast majority of our health and our physical performance, cognitive, is determined by the quality of the nutrients. And that was, again, you know, way before many people were paying attention to this, you know, to this concept of nutrient density and the quality of the food that we consume. Most people still are focusing on the quantity and working off that outdated energy in, energy out, or calories in, calories out, energy balance formula. And it's just simply outdated and has been proven time and time again not to be the, the most important way of looking at nutrition. So, yeah, that was my intro. Wow. Okay. That's fascinating. Can I ask you some questions about that study? Sure. So how long was it? How many days? That was what was so powerful. This was just an acute meal challenge. So it was just a single meal challenge that we were providing to these vegetarians and we called non-vegetarians, omnivores. So we had them come in, measured their baseline metabolism. So we had a, a, an understanding of what their resting metabolism was. And then we fed them the meal challenge. And then we measured their metabolism and their thermic response for three hours after, along with hormones. So we measured their thyroid hormones, insulin, glucose. So yeah, it was a, a fun study to be a part of. So do you have any idea since then? Have you learned how long it would take them to adapt or habituate? Like, do you think if they had another meal, it would have the same effect? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I'm not aware of too many other studies in, in, that have converted <laughs> vegetarians, you know, during a study into becoming an omnivore. You know, it's, it's hard to do, right? It's hard to break that. So I'm not aware... I, I, you know, I think it's a fairly acute response, and I think the habituation from that or the acclimatizing to that higher quality protein, you know, it probably occurs, obviously it occurs acutely, so very quickly that the body begins to hold on to those amino acids because they realize how precious they are. And then how how long does it take before maybe the body becomes, and I don't, I, I caution to use this word, but, you know, desensitized to it, or maybe feels like, well, we've got sufficient amino acids now. We don't need to necessarily conserve those at the same level as what we were. I don't know how long that would take. Yeah. It, it really depends on the person, their activity level, right? Because your activity is going to determine the degree to which your body holds on and utilizes, makes bioavailable those amino acids for recovery and muscle protein synthesis. So I think a lot of it would have to do with how active the person is at the time that they're making that transition 
But the good news is, I guess I, I, I go back to, you know, the bottom line takeaway of, of the good news is that our body is, is very responsive and that if we are eating poorly or perhaps not to the level that the body optimally needs nutrients, it, once it's exposed and, and once it has an opportunity to benefit from a high quality nourishing meal, the body can respond very quickly. And, and that's what we took away, that the body is extremely responsive to consuming high quality nourishment, even if a person has not been eating really well for a period of time. I think when people hear protein, they don't think it can be stored per se. So when you say stored, like is it storing the amino acids in the muscles or how, how does it store the protein? Yeah. So storage is probably not the ideal word, but I would use the word, you know, the bioavailable, the net utilization of the amino acids just become greater, become more available into the amino acid pool. So when we eat those high quality sources of protein, when the body begins the process of breaking that protein down and making those amino acids available to the body, they're incorporated into the cells to allow for the various pathways and functions that protein provides, which is, you know, abundant. We have so many different uses of amino acids inside of our body, you know, making enzymes, making body tissues, hormones, structures, and so immune cells. So I think it, that's what the, the protein was being utilized for as opposed to perhaps being oxidized and, and not utilized as efficiently. Maybe this actually ties in really well to a, a similar concept because that would be, you know, the concept of two populations receiving historically more or less protein. What about for people, because you have this protein pacing idea, what about the timing of protein? So if you are having protein throughout the day, does that change the body's thermogenic or metabolic response to it compared to if you're having it in concentrated meals or doing it with fasting, for example, and having all your protein at once? How does that affect the body's thermogenic and metabolic response? So there's some good data coming out of some of the labs around the world. I can think of two offhand in, in Canada, one McMaster, and then some of the other work that's been done here in the States. Although and what they've shown is that when they provide protein in various manners, and they've looked at it as a bolus feeding, so you know, two larger feedings of protein versus providing it in a more concentrated form, but distributed more evenly throughout the day. They did a, a bolus of two challenges of protein. So they gave the same amount of protein over the course of the day. And they either delivered it in two, four, or eight feedings. I think those are the, the numbers that they used. And what they found was that there, there seems to be an optimal amount. So in terms of the timing that you're describing, when it's administered in a way that the body can optimally digest it, absorb it, transport it, metabolize, store, and utilize, it seems to be in this feeding of roughly four hours apart. And so that would be a recommendation for people to try to see if they can optimize during a feeding day, if they're not undergoing a fasting, 
to try to optimize their protein intake. And this is what we follow in our lab. We follow this protein pacing schedule of about every three and a half, but more optimally every four hours. That seems to be an ideal time where the body has sufficient focus of digesting and absorbing the amino acids from the protein, as opposed to, you know, concentrating it into this, you know, much more, you know, larger amount of protein. It's just harder for the body to to digest it. So that's what we know about. And, And protein synthesis goes up. So if you're looking at one of the functions of protein in the body, it is to increase tissue repair, tissue growth, and so we, we call that protein synthesis. And what we found is when you administer the protein in that more pacing approach, four hours, the body just seems to be more ideal at absorbing it. So that's an important take home for people to consume that protein. We know that following an overnight fast, the body is starting to transition into a greater protein breakdown state. So there's always the balance. So when we talk about, at least from the muscle standpoint, muscle protein balance, the body's always trying to maintain in in an ideal world, a state of muscle protein synthesis. So always having slightly more recovery, tissue repair and growth than we are having breakdown. Because we know that as we age, our breakdown of our body protein stores is is occurring at an accelerated rate. We have a blunting of our body's ability to build new protein and repair. And so in the morning, we're in a slightly higher muscle protein breakdown state. And so that's why it's so important to start the day with a high quality serving of protein, especially on a day that you're coming off, for example, an intermittent fast. And we can talk maybe more about what that means. But when we undergo an intermittent fast, our body's undergoing some really favorable cellular changes. And one of those is preparing the body for the reentry of of high quality nourishment. So we're actually creating an environment during an intermittent nutrition, during an intermittent fast, where the body wants to supercharge its protein synthesis. And I know that sounds a little bit unusual. Most people, when they think of an intermittent fast, you know, the body is, is kind of breaking itself down. It's, it's removing old unwanted tissue and cells. It's undergoing this process of autophagy, you know, kind of the house cleaning. And so there's some really beneficial cellular responses. One of them is preparing the body to optimize protein synthesis. So there's an ideal window of time that when you are coming off of an intermittent fast, when you provide the first reentry of, of high quality nourishment should be amino acids, should be protein, the highest quality protein that you can try to get your, your hands on because that's going to be put to really good use in the body. When we combine intermittent fasting with protein pacing in that way, so the goal is to, every four hours, have that high-quality feeding throughout the day on, on a normal feeding day. That's kind of the ideal. And then when, you ha- when a person has intermittent fasted, however long they decide to do it, it could be a 16-hour window, as some do with the 16-8 method. Some do a 24-hour 
intermittent fast, some extend it a little bit longer. The important point here is that when you do break that fast, you want the highest quality protein that you can consume. Hi friends, I'm about to tell you how to get 20% off one of my favorite things for truly taking charge of your health, including testing something we talk about all the time, your insulin levels. So to live your healthiest and longest life possible, you need to understand what's going on inside. Inside Tracker takes a personalized approach to health and longevity from the most trusted and relevant source that would be your body. By using data from your blood, DNA, and fitness trackers, Inside Tracker gives you personalized and science backed recommendations on things that you can take control of to optimize your health. What I love about Inside Tracker is that Inside Tracker tests provide optimal ranges, not conventional ranges, for over 40 biomarkers, including magnesium, vitamin D, testosterone, cortisol, ferritin, which is the storage form of iron that is rare for doctors to test, ApoB, three key female biomarkers, and something I am so excited about, Inside Tracker recently added insulin testing to their ultimate plan. Friends, I am thrilled about this. We talk about insulin all the time on this show. It is so relevant to your metabolic health and your lifespan. In particular, insulin tracking is an early warning sign for several chronic diseases and is a key indicator of energy optimization. It can really let you know if your diet, if your fasting is working for you, you want to test your insulin. It is so hard to get doctors to test insulin, and now you can do it with Inside Tracker. The thing I love most about Inside Tracker is that they have a strict science-backed approach to everything they do. If your specific biomarker level is unoptimized, Inside Tracker actually provides recommendations that are backed by dozens of peer-reviewed studies and personalized to you. This process was set in place by their founders that include experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, Tufts, and MIT. And for a limited time, our audience can get 20% off their ultimate plan, which includes testing that insulin when you sign up at insidetracker.com slash IF podcast. So if you're ready to get a crystal clear picture of what's going on inside your body, along with science-backed recommendations to optimize what's not working, then visit insidetracker.com slash ifpodcast. And one of the things I really love about InsideTracker is it helps you track all of your results, all of your tests over time, so you can see patterns, see your history. It makes predictions of where you'll be if you continue on your current trajectory. It is a game changer for making sense of your labs. I am obsessed with Inside Tracker. Again, you can get 20% off their ultimate plan, including testing your insulin levels at insidetracker.com slash ifpodcast. And we will put all of this information in the show notes. I was really glad that you brought up, you know, the pacing period of, of three to four hours, because that's just a question that we get so much. We were actually talking about it last night when we were recording. And we're well aware that there's an anabolic window about 24 hours for people who are not professional athletes. But people are often curious, like, you know, what that that amount of time is. So I'm really glad that you brought that up and, and clarified it. And I'm actually, I really want to try the protein pacing approach. I'm, I'm planning on trying it as sort of an experiment later this summer to do this, you know, having the high quality protein every three to four hours throughout my eating window and seeing what happens with it and doing some body composition before and after. So it'll be interesting to see if it makes a difference. Yeah. And then something else I wanted to comment on 
a lot of people often say that it's not good to eat, you know, multiple hours before bed, but in your protein pacing approach, you actually do recommend eating two hours before bed. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. That's so controversial. Yeah. <laughs> Would you like to expand on that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, so, so is breakfast is not being, you know, one of the most important meals of the day. And then we can maybe talk about that, but the, the nighttime feeding is, is actually crucial. And there's such a difference. I think that people need to understand that it, again, it, it it's less about the quantity, although that's important. You don't want to overconsume later on the day. We call it kind of, you know, the back end of eating. You want to do more front loading of your calories if possible. But definitely for, for athletes and people that have had more of a challenging window during the day to consume the nutrients, you know, so often people either get busy or they make the conscious decision to not eat too much during the day and then Unfortunately, at night, sometimes the floodgates open and they end up over consuming. And those two over consumed nutrients are oftentimes simple carbohydrates and, and some fat. And so that combination is not ideal. So at night, when you are trying to replenish the body with optimal nourishment, carbohydrates and, and fats together are not the ideal combination. We have lots of scientific proof to show that you know, those two things are going to very, very quickly favor energy storage inside your body. And, and unfortunately, not in the form of, of healthy, lean muscle mass, which is what the goal is during that overnight time period, because you have a hormonal environment that is very favorable to allowing the body to recover, repair, and rejuvenate during those nighttime hours. And you want to provide the optimal nourishment. And that comes in the form of, of amino acids of high quality protein. So yeah, that two hour eating window before you go to bed, it does not have to be high calorie. It should optimally be high quality protein. And then perhaps a little bit of healthy fat, because that will help keep the insulin level down you know, a little bit lower than it would be if you were to consume protein and, and a more simple carb or some optimal high quality protein and some complex carbohydrates, that combination or a combination of all three, but definitely the protein. And the amount seems to be somewhere between 20 to 40 grams. So people often ask, oh, that seems like so much, you know, how many calories is that? Well, it's going to be somewhere between 80 and 160 calories of protein. Now, 40 does seem like a lot, but again, if you're a, a really intense, high energy output athlete, that's not that much for, for those types of individuals that need to replenish and rebuild and restore muscle tissue. But somewhere within that range of 20 to 40 grams of protein. And then, like I said, the balance of the remaining calories could be in the form of healthy fat, whether it's avocado or nuts and seeds, those would be some of the foods. And then some fresh fruit, perhaps, blueberries, somewhat on the lower sugar side, but high antioxidant because of the favorable anti-inflammatory benefits you'll get from you know, dark colored fruits that could be beneficial as well. So that would be the recommendation. Yeah, that's a, actually a really important feeding because not catching that window or benefiting from that feeding window at night for, for certain people. And here's what's interesting. 
Vanessa and Melanie, when we make this recommendation to people who want weight loss, that's one of the most important feedings that they end up doing. And I know it sounds kind of contrary, but yeah, for weight loss and for muscle mass growth, maintenance and growth, that feeding is, is equally important for both of those groups. And they're actually on opposite ends of the spectrum, right? You have one group that's excess body weight and body fat, and they're having that high quality protein just before bed and benefiting from it tremendously. I mean, yeah, the, the, the data that we have from our lab that, you know, we, we incorporate that as, as really a kind of a required component to their nutrition dietary regimen is a game changer in terms of the benefit that they have in their body composition, in terms of muscle mass maintenance and fat loss that occurs. And then we know from an athletic standpoint, that's also extremely beneficial to helping increase muscle mass. It's really, really interesting because I've, I've come across it before for athletes who are especially physique competitors to have a protein feed before bed helps with preventing any muscle protein breakdown at night. But most of the researchers that I've spoken to say, you got to make sure to close that eating window as early in the day as possible, especially because of leptin, docking around midnight, like you don't want to have high insulin competing with leptin. So that, that's fascinating that that's what you found in your lab. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But I think the, the key, and I'm glad you pointed it out, you know, we try to minimize the insulin spike when we do deliver that protein. And so we, with weight loss, we generally recommend the protein with a, a small fat combination, you know, a fat feeding, either whether it's nuts or some coconut or avocado, you know, something that, again, helps kind of counter that, that insulin release we have found beneficial. And then interestingly, to continue the controversy, it was so layered because when it comes to the controversy with breakfast, so first of all, we have the very intense pro-breakfast movement. Then we have the the response, especially in the fasting community, trying to point out all of the potential issues with the breakfast-funded studies. But then you point out the issues with the critique of pointing out the issues of the breakfast studies. So where do you land on on breakfast. Yeah. So during, during fasting, obviously you, you are not providing any, any nourishment during that time period, but I think that has to be done very infrequently. And again, because we've already discussed that when you are waking up in the morning after a fast, your body's not in an ideal environment for protein synthesis. It's actually starting to transition into a, a greater state of protein breakdown, but you're you're having less protein synthesis is what essentially is happening. And that's not ideal, particularly for weight loss. So let's just talk about it for weight loss. So we, we really recommend with our study participants that it's most important that you start the day as soon as possible upon waking with a high quality serving of protein combined again with very, very high quality nourishment of, of you know, lower glycemic index carbohydrates and healthy forms of, of fat coming in. But that that is the ideal environment to transition immediately over into a greater state of protein synthesis. And that's what's key because they're doing it at the same time they're consuming less calories. So they're on a, a lower calorie intake, but 
they need to safeguard against any further increase in muscle protein breakdown and decrease of muscle protein synthesis. So that early morning feeding is, is paramount for them and for their success. It's, it's, it's actually essential for their satiation. You know, otherwise they run the risk of becoming much too hungry and making the wrong food choice. So in our study participants, that one of the main reasons we've had the success that we have is because we place such a uh, a very focused and heavy emphasis on that early morning morning feeding of high quality protein. It's it's just absolutely essential. By the way, it's important to point out that much of our research it, we do when we're dealing with weight loss in people, we are controlling for their exercise. So we're in some of our studies, not all of them, because we do place a heavy emphasis on the lifestyle approach, incorporating exercise, as you know, through the prize protocol that I created. But for many people, we actually much prefer that we monitor and control and limit their exercise because that can increase feeding behaviors. And we really want to focus on their nutrition only. And so we're making this recommendation for them to eat first thing in the morning, knowing that we're not recommending that they engage in any level of strenuous exercise other than normal walking and things like that. So yeah, that norm, that early morning feeding, and I think that's where the controversy has been, that much of the backlash against breakfast not being as beneficial or healthy or optimal for people's overall health is because they've missed the target again. They have not had their eye toward the nutrient that is the most essential, and that's protein. You know, they've just focused on a, a typical breakfast feeding, which is usually higher carbohydrate, and that's been why some of the data points to breakfast not being beneficial. And so we de-emphasize, obviously, the carbohydrate aspect and emphasize the protein. But yeah, it's super, super important. And it's particularly important that breakfast feeding after they come off, we do a what's a, a, what called a one-day, 24-hour or two-day fast, 24 or 48. It actually is a little bit longer than that in some cases because we recommend on a one-day that they hold off on that feeding that night that evening. So if they've gone from stopping eating the day before, let's say at eight o'clock, and then they fast the entire day the next day, instead of them resuming eating at eight o'clock the next, next night, we will often have them abstain from consuming their first meal until the following morning. So they're actually doing the equivalent of a 36-hour fast. And then the ones that are doing a two-day are actually extending it to the following morning of the following day. So it would be a 60 hour fast, which is a little bit longer. We don't have them abstain completely as Vanessa and I talked about in our previous podcast. We have them consume a very high quality, nutrient dense, adaptogen, antioxidant beverages and some collagen protein as well during the intermittent fast, but it's very, very low calorie, but it's administered again on that pacing schedule of every four hours, but it's very low nutrition. So it's only about a hundred calories, each of those feedings. So over the course of a day, it's the equivalent of about 400 calories, which is not a lot to trigger any significant disruption in the benefits of the, the fasting that we're having them do. So yeah, I would say in conclusion, breakfast is super important. Whether you're looking to lose body fat and change your body composition favorably by losing body fat, particularly abdominal 
visceral fat and maintaining and even increasing your lean body mass. And that goes hand in hand with the evening feeding as well. And I think I shared that my, our 2013 obesity journal study showed that in those, that group of individuals, when they followed this protein pacing and calorie restricted regimen, they lost significant amounts of weight, but they actually were able to increase, although slightly, but significantly their lean body mass. So yeah, it definitely, definitely makes a difference. I have some questions about the fasting. Before that, I have one really random question that I've been thinking about for so long. I don't know if you have any thoughts or know the answer to this. The autophagy that occurs during fasting, does it create any measurable amount of, quote, protein that we could measure for people who are fasting, do they maybe need slightly less protein in their eating window because they're freeing up amino acids from autophagy while fasting? I don't know if, if they would need less. I mean, it would make sense that during that process, the body is shuttling some amino acids into the the free pool, but I don't know if less would be. So when they resume feeding, is that what you're thinking? So like compared to eating protein all throughout the day, compared to if you're fasting and you have autophagy, are you freeing up, you know, recycling, getting more aminos? Yeah, I, I would caution about over providing. So you probably wouldn't need more during that fasting time period. We, we do provide a little bit during the actual fasting window. But like I said, in, in very small amounts, and we don't do it at every one of the four feedings. We only do it at one, maybe two of them where we'll provide, have them consume a little bit of additional protein, usually, in, like I said, in the form of collagen or bone broth is the form that we use. And yeah, I don't know how much difference it makes in their overall protein balance and protein synthesis. Maybe it just helps provide that little bit extra to allow for a halting of any additional amount of, of protein breakdown. That's also what I would wonder about, because I know a lot of our listeners and me included do fast daily. So like I do, I fast every day completely and then just eat in the evening. It works really well for me. I've been able to maintain and even build muscle doing that. Vanessa and I were talking about this yesterday. Like I'm like, well, am, when I get older, is it going to be a problem? So yeah, I'm, I'm very haunted by, by these questions. Yeah, no, that those are, and they're really good ones to ask. Yeah. So let me just ask, I'm curious how many people turn around and ask the hosts questions, but when you do your fast, are they more than a 16 hour? It seems, it sounds like it is because you're only eating within a very small window. I typically eat for about four or five hours in the evening, very high protein, like very, we're pounds and pounds of protein and blueberries. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And you're also, it sounds like you're exercising, you're doing some resistance exercise and... Well, I wear weights during the day around, I do a lot of M-Sculpt actually. Are you familiar with that? I've heard of it, but I'm not familiar with the specifics of it. It's a machine that does tons of muscle contractions, like more than you could ever do consciously. So a little bit like East Easton? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm actually interviewing Terry Walls this week as well. She talks about Eastem all the time. So I've been like looking at Eastem a lot. Yeah, similar, similar to that. So yeah, so I've been able to build muscle with that and fasting. Like I haven't broken my fasting pattern. Like I said, I do consume a very large amount of protein. 
So with your fasting, because I know we're going to get a lot of questions about this, how do we know what enzymatic processes and characteristics and benefits of fasting apply to a person on a non completely strict, non-caloric fast compared to a fast where there is, you know, a small amount of calories. I mean, it sounds a little bit similar to Walter Longo's fasting mimicking diet. We've had him on the show a few times, although your version, because I was thinking about it, because his version, the focus is low protein, like that's the focus. And your version seems to sound like the focus is on higher protein, but low calorie. Is that correct? While fasting? You know what? It, it, it absolutely is. Yeah. Walter and David Sinclair, although he takes a slightly different approach with his fasting, again, it's, they're both lower protein. And we just haven't found the same degree of success overall. And, and again, we're looking at it very broadly in the approach that we take with our model of intermittent fasting and protein pacing. We are, we're not so concerned with, I don't know, how do I want to say this without coming across as being too negative on, on their approach, but you know, we're looking at it from an overall physical, cognitive and, and performance health outcome. And so, yeah, I think for body composition, we, we, just believe, I mean, again, I could cite our last obesity study that you both had read and Vanessa had come across and that you both had kind of blogged about. I mean, that was a good example. I mean, we had two groups. One was not following the intermittent fasting, they were, they were, but they were calorically restricting and it was in low, with lower protein. And they just did not have nearly the same benefit. So, you know, from an overall perspective, from a body composition, hormonal cardiovascular. So I, I, it, it's hard to justify the lowering of the protein during the normal dietary eating window, feeding window, without being able to you know, counterbalance that protein breakdown that, that would be occurring as you come off that fast. So here's a question, because I know Longo has said that ideally people would just do a water fast, but he found it was too hard for people. So that's why he created the fasting mimicking diet. It sounds like for you, although I'll ask you, if people did your approach with just water fasting, do you think that would have negative effects? Yes. Yeah, I do. And I gave this analogy earlier that if it's if it's only water, I, I struggle with that just because... I give the analogy that when we are undergoing a, a fast and it's only water, does it truly allow the body to counter the, the, the toxins, for example, that are being released because that's what's happening? Does it truly help facilitate and augment the old unwanted cells that the body is trying to dispose of and, and break down. Yeah. It, again, you know, just speaking specific to our data, what we have found is that when you can help this autophagy and mitophagy and, and the whole process that's occurring during that fast and, and as much as possible help support the protein synthesis that you want to optimize coming off of the fast, 
you know, providing the body some additional support with the antioxidants and some of the adaptogens. And, you know, both, I, I know, you know, Sinclair talks about this a lot in his research, you know, being able to provide some of these nutrients that the body definitely benefits from, from a, you know, a gene expression standpoint and an enzyme at an enzyme level as well, that it just seems that during that intermittent fasting period, especially the longer you go with it. So I guess if it was a shorter window, maybe less, less than 20 hours, 18 hours, you know, some of the Matson's work in, in DeCabo, you know, if it's, if it's less than that time period and you're not quite into that ketosis state and water perhaps is, is sufficient. But I think if you're extending beyond that, and that's the model that we use, again, as I mentioned, you know, our fasting window is longer. I, I think having those additional very low calorie, but very nutrient dense antioxidants and adaptogens, I think, play a, a critical role in helping the body facilitate that, that process of autophagy and helping for the removal of some of those things, some of those, you know, toxic substances. Have you tested just the non-caloric antioxidant supplementation, or is it always with the snacking aspect as well? So we've we've only used the a caloric restriction model, so where they're just paying attention to a, a daily cal- caloric restriction, and then this nutritionally fasted intermittent fast. Yeah, so we will support it with these. Yeah, I. I hesitate to use the word snacking, although sorry. <laughs> no, I, I mean it is it is right because they are consuming that very small amount, and in some cases, you know, those adaptogens and antioxidants that they're consuming, it's not quite even a hundred calories. In some cases, for some of them, it's down as low as twenty to forty calories over a four-hour window. So, I mean, that's that's really negligible, but. Yeah, it's not standard across the board that they're all taking in, you know, 100 calories at each of those feedings every four hours. In some cases, it's as low as 20 to 40 calories. But yeah, no, that that's a really good point. Doing that comparison where we're having that intermittent fast and matching calories over the course of a full day, I think would be a, a next study to, to clearly delineate, you know, what is the difference in terms of the body composition changes, the hormonal, metabolic, cardiovascular, even some of the mood state benefits that we have shown as well to a complete water, non-caloric fast to this very low calorie, nutritionally supported fast? It would be awesome to see that for like two camps, like people who are doing fasting less, like you were saying, like, you know, maybe 18 or 20 hours and then the extended version. That would be exciting. It would be because, again, you know, there's two kind of two camps on that. You know, if you look at some of the, I know Madison and and DeCabo, they they speak to that longer fast period as being beneficial and and others do as well. And others, you know, have found success with the shorter window. Is there the potential that exogenous antioxidants would downregulate the body's endogenous antioxidant production? Yeah, I, I, I do. And we have evidence to support that at those higher concentrated amounts, there very likely would be a downregulation of the body's endogenous. But I think, again, we're although we're providing this nutrient-dense source of these antioxidants and adaptogens, it's far, they're far below 
what you would find in a normal supplemented antioxidant product, you know, where it's more of a daily serving. So when you think about some of the antioxidants that are commercially available and sold, they're usually in these very highly concentrated sources that you would take once during the day or maybe twice, but they would be very, very concentrated to allow for that absorption to occur, you know, over the course of a day. Whereas what we're providing in this liquid form is much more diluted and not nearly at the same concentration level. So again, unlikely that it would create that down regulation that it would normally occur that we find when people are supplementing with those much higher concentrations. Awesome. And then I do, cause I feel like, I feel like we dove straight deep into the details and Vanessa and I have talked about this so much that I forget that a lot of the listeners, this is their first time hearing about this study. So just to, to recap the findings of the study, what were the actual findings with, and you already said this, but I just want to draw more attention to it with the, the weight loss. Was it around the same calories that both groups ate? Yes. So great question. So in our most recent publication, yeah, we, we provided on average, the women about 1,200 calories over the course of a week, I'm sorry, over the course of a day, day, although that changed slightly depending upon whether they were fat intermittent fasting for one day or two days, and the caloric restriction group the same. They were consuming the women about 1,200 calories. Men, we bumped up a little bit higher, and again, it was based on body weight differences between the men and the women, men were at about 1500 calories. And so despite having, and again, I'm so glad you asked that question because it's a really important one to focus on. Despite having identical calorie intakes over the course of the the measurement period. In fact, I'm, I'm looking at the data right here and the energy intake was actually slightly higher in the intermittent fasting groups compared to the caloric restriction groups. So that's telling that here they were consuming even slightly more calories, but they ended up losing significantly more body weight, significantly more fat weight. They reduced their waist circumference significantly more. So yeah, despite having slightly higher intakes, the intermittent fasting protein pacing groups lost more weight, lost more body fat, more visceral fat. They were able to maintain their their lean body mass to a greater degree than the caloric restriction group. So I, I don't think there's any controversy or disagreement that, you know, all calories are not the same, obviously. And even, you know, how we consume them makes a big difference because our data shows very convincingly that when these two groups of people were able to change it up, it was almost a doubling of weight loss, a doubling of body fat, a doubling of visceral fat. They, they had a, a significant reduction in their, their desire to eat. That, that dropped significantly. So yeah, those are really important takeaways. I love that you recapped the the findings on the study for everyone for listeners who aren't who haven't been talking about it as much as you and I have it's really really helpful and I I know that it was intentional that the calories would be equated but I I really stood out to me that the one group was ended up eating more and still losing more which is you know it's one of the amazing features of intermittent fasting definitely 
Okay, some other really quick rabbit hole tangent questions from some of your other studies, or actually in your book as well. I was wondering if you could talk very briefly. There's something that Vanessa and I are a little bit fans of, and that's being smart and using caffeine to your advantage. And you had a cool section in your book on your thoughts on caffeine. What are your thoughts on caffeine? (laughs) Yeah, so that was an interesting one too. Early on in my career, I was not a caffeine drinker. And I had read a lot about the the benefits of of caffeine and and sometimes the not so benefits, sometimes the, the detriments of caffeine. So we don't necessarily control it to any great degree, although we do control, we, we do ask them to report caffeine intake. And it is a very powerful central nervous system and peripheral nervous system stimulant. So it activates our central nervous system and our peripheral nervous system in the sense that, you know, from a metabolic standpoint, it increases the release of stored body fat we call that lipolysis. So it just breaks down our lipid stores, which are our body fat stores into our bloodstream. And it makes the fatty acids, that's the equivalent of amino acids to protein, fatty acids to fat. It makes these subunits of our lipid stores available to cells to use as energy to burn. And so caffeine to a very large degree, helps mobilize our body fat stores. And here's where it gets a little bit interesting. When when you consume caffeine, there are some differences between old and young people. And so I was able to study that extensively early on in my career. And I was able to show that younger, more fit and active people have an easier ability to mobilize their stored body fat into their bloodstream to be accessed and used as an energy source in their, in their cells, primarily their muscle cells. Whereas we get older, we lose that ability with one caveat, the, the more active we stay, the more fit we stay. So here's a plug for, I know we haven't talked much about exercise or physical activity, but the more we can engage our body in movement as we're drinking this caffeine, especially as we get older, the more likely we are to maintain the the benefits of the caffeine to release it from our fat stores. And so, and that's a really good indication of health. Our body's ability to release fat from its storage depot is an indication of health. We, we want to be able to do that. It's when we have become resistant to mobilizing our body fat into our blood to be circulating it to the muscle cells and other cells that would break it down and use it as an energy source is a sign of of disease. And so caffeine is really helpful for some people. I'm not a caffeine drinker, although I understand the benefits from it. So what we do in our research in our lab is we encourage a very strategic application of caffeine intake. We recommend that people consume it earlier on in the day is the ideal time to do it if you are someone who does drink caffeine or consume caffeine, because then you will benefit from the rest of the day being active and moving and allowing for your body to use that storage storage release of fat into the body. So earlier in the day, caffeine is, is ideal for people. 
And it has some proven health benefits. We know that caffeine has some antioxidants, or at least coffee does, and tea that contain caffeine, chocolate, dark chocolate, especially 70% or more above of cacao. So you have the added benefit of, of, you know, the caffeine in those products of coffee, tea, and chocolate, providing some benefit to release the fat into the blood to be used as energy, and then also to provide some additional antioxidants, uh, naturally occurring antioxidants and levels that the body can benefit from. So yeah, I'm, I'm favorable to it, especially if people can tolerate it, but it's not for everybody. Sometimes people are sensitive to the caffeine in terms of heart palpitations, irritability, insomnia, which happen also to be the same things that people experience when they have withdrawal from caffeine. So it can be a double-edged sword, but I think for a lot of people who can tolerate it and enjoy it, just making sure that they're consuming it earlier on in the day is ideal so that it doesn't interfere with, with resting and sleep. Awesome. Yeah. I think because when it comes to the whole caffeine world or even like fat burner supplement world, which a lot of those are really crazy and I wouldn't put them in my mouth, but I think people see it and they think, oh, well, there's no magic pill to burn fat, which is true. But if there are compounds which unlock the ability to burn fat, I think that's huge. So um, being smart about it sounds like the way to go. Yeah, I think we we definitely don't have an, you know, an underemphasis on caffeine. We have plenty of it available at our disposal anytime we want. So, yeah, if anything we have to be a little bit more cautious about overconsuming it. And so, yeah, that equivalent of 1 to 2 cups a day is a safe recommendation as long as it's done earlier on in the day, it can be a a benefit to people. Okay. And then another question I'm dying to ask you, you have a fascinating study. I know I had the title here, but it was looking at the thermogenic response to like a processed type of diet, but a nutritionally rich one compared to whole foods and actually finding a higher thermogenic effect with the supplemental form. What were your findings with that? That was really surprising to me. That was. That was a fascinating study. And I think if it was the one that you're referring to, it's the postprandial postprandial thermic response to unprocessed whole food meal. Oh, I found it. Yeah. <laughs> Lower postprandial thermogenic response to an unprocessed whole food meal compared to an isoenergetic macronutrient meal replacement in young women, August 2020. Yeah. Yeah. This was a really interesting study. We wanted to see, we, we fed these two different breakfast meals So, you know, there's a lot of controversy over meal replacements, and we we wanted to somewhat dispel that because there's there's different processing that takes place with more traditional processed foods that are highly refined and not necessarily nutritionally engineered. They're 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 looking to provide palatable food, high simple sugars, high refined carbohydrate not very healthy from a, a perspective of, of nourishment, nutrient density. And so we, we sought to change that. And what we did was we took a group of women, we fed them two identical meals. So they ate pretty much the same thing, about half the number of calories in the meal, about 500 calories were carbohydrates, 26% fat, 24% protein. So it was, it was a, a balanced, a relatively balanced, if you want to you know, use that much carbohydrate. We generally don't recommend carbohydrate intake that high. We're more on the 
the side of a, of a lower carbohydrate, not quite to the level of ketogenic, but in some cases, you know, we, we advocate for a much higher fat ratio compared to that level, but we were providing more of a typical meal. And so we gave a whole food meal or a meal replacement. And what we found, given the same number of calories, same macronutrient distribution, the meal replacement, the nutritionally, what we call nutritionally engineered meal, resulted in a much higher thermic response. So they burned much more of their calories, similar to what we found, actually, interestingly enough, with the vegetarian study that I described at the beginning. And so this meal replacement just kind of jacked up their their calorie expenditure, energy expenditure, almost double compared to the group that was eating the whole food meal. And so it's one of those conclusions, and I have to be careful because I am a, a, a strong whole food proponent, that I think sometimes we compartmentalize nutritionally engineered foods as being bad because they're processed, right? We can drink them out of a powdered container or already ready to drink, you know, ready to drink mixed meal. And I'm not saying all of them are necessarily good or bad, but some of them clearly can provide a nutritious meal replacement, especially if they have been formulated in in a really smart way and beneficial way in terms of the ingredients that they use. And so, yeah, I think it was just important to, to highlight that. I had never seen that before. Like all the studies I had read before on that topic were finding the opposite. But like you said, I guess there's a key difference in the formulation of those products. They they, they do range. And that happened, you know, despite any differences in hunger, satiety, blood glucose. So that was that was interesting. What were you expecting to find? Yeah, because of the composition of the meal, one obviously being a liquid and the other one being a whole food. Yeah, I think we were thinking that the there might be a, a difference in their, the blood glucose response, the satiety because of the, again, the administration of how the meal was was provided. And so that was a little bit in, op, in opposition of what we were thinking, that this liquid meal, based on what most people would think, you would have this, you know, very high perhaps maybe glucose response, maybe the body wouldn't undergo as much digestion because it's already in a liquid form. And so the fact that we found this higher thermic response was was unusual. Maybe one last thing we could touch on, because I think it was the most recent publication I could find from you, but it was an editorial, How Does Exercise Modify the Course of Alzheimer's Disease? And It was really, really fascinating. But one thing I wanted to ask you about specifically was you actually had a paragraph about the role of leptin in Alzheimer's. I was wondering what your thoughts are on that because leptin is a hormone that we talk about a lot on this show and how it's affected by things like diet and fasting and all the things. So do you have thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, as I I say in that editorial, that's interesting that you found that one. That's been a, a hot topic for people lately because leptin is has those dual those dual roles inside the body in in one way i don't know how you've talked about it on your podcast but it's similar in how our body also deals with insulin insulin is obviously extremely important as is leptin in helping regulate our blood sugar insulin 
leptin helping regulate our energy stores and our arcuate nucleus and the hypothalamus in terms of feeding and, and, and sending signals to the brain, you know, in terms of feeding and satiety. But I think it can get out of whack and it can be, we can become obviously leptin resistant. And so, but we also know that when, when leptin does get up too high, it has that inflammatory response. And so we just have to be careful about that. And so I talk about how leptin serves this dual role as this hormone in terms of how it helps mediate and regulate various endocrine and metabolic pathways, particularly around our, our energy storage. And then it's also a cytokine, which augments kind of this inflammatory role. And so we've shown, at least for as we age, and I'm talking about as we get into older age, lower leptin concentrations are actually associated with this increased risk and progression of Alzheimer's disease, disease and related dementias. So as much as you know, we want to regulate leptin, if it gets too low, that's not healthy. But we know that when we have leptin out of control and it gets too high, it can become very pro-inflammatory and that's not beneficial. So we need to again, undergo lifestyle strategies that provide the crosstalk between our energy stores, our body energy stores, particularly our adipose tissue, and our central nervous system in a way that the communication is uninhibited. It's, it's very sensitized. It's, it's occurring in, in a very fluid harmonic way. And I think we, we do so many things to disrupt that communication signaling. We oftentimes have leptin circulating at too high levels, much like we do insulin. And when, when leptin is circulating excessively as it is too often in too many people, we just lose that sensitivity. We lose that communication pathway operating at the level that it should. And we know that that creates a, a very pro-inflammatory state. It's not good for the brain. It's not good for the you know, blood vessels of the body. It's not good for anything in the body. And so what we have shown is that when our study participants undergo protein pacing and intermittent fasting, their leptin levels drop drastically you know, from the very excessive levels that they're at. So, and that's a very favorable response. And it's not like they're, they're dropping into these very dangerous low levels where it would be implicated perhaps in this progression that we talked about with Alzheimer's when, you know, levels get too low. But a lot of times that's associated with low energy, energy stores when people are malnourished. So there's other factors going on when that leptin gets down that too low. But if we can keep leptin communicating with the brain, at a, at, a, at a level that's manageable within the blood so that it's not creating this pro-inflammatory state. It's not losing, it's not being dysregulated in its communication pathway with the brain. It's actually serving an instrumental role. And so the good news is, is that we were able to document this really significant drop. In, in fact, in one of the studies that I sent to both of you, one of our first intermittent fasting protein pasting papers we showed a 70% drop in leptin. And that was despite having other very favorable changes in the inflammatory state of the participants and cardiovascularly, their, their cardiovascular system improved drastically. We had much greater return times. We had very favorable changes in pulse wave velocity 
and augmentation index. So we, we demonstrated that the the, arteri- the arteries, the blood vessels, the, the vessels that manage our, our blood flow coming from the heart, all changed in a really favorable way. They got much more elastic and responsive. At the same time, these changes were happening in leptin. And so, yeah, leptin leptin's a powerful, powerful hormone and plays a critical role in so many areas of the body, not just, I think we just sometimes assume that it's only regulating our energy stores and it just, that's not true. I mean, it's super important in general in inflammation in our periphery, but also cognitively, um, central nervous system wise. Just to circle back to the beginning, I know that one of the strategies for lowering leptin levels when they're too high is having a protein prioritized breakfast. So I love that we can kind of circle back to that. Now, one thing I wanted to make sure that we did touch on with you, when you were on the Optimal Protein Podcast, you mentioned that you have an incredible amount of data that you collected on the gut microbiome. And I wanted to make sure that we got to chat about that a little bit. That's definitely a topic that our listeners and Melanie and myself are fascinated by as well. Vanessa, thanks for pointing that out. We do. We have so much great data. And I'm sorry that I can't share it all with you. Ah, it's heartbreaking. What What we do know is that we've had some extremely favorable changes in the gut microbiome when people follow the intermittent fasting protein pacing compared to the calorie restriction. And I know, you know, without having the no calorie, non-caloric fasting, we can't talk about that. And I think that's a a great next study, but at least from our model of the intermittent nutritional fasting and protein pacing compared to the caloric restriction, the diversity of the gut microbiome is changed extremely favorably. And that data will hopefully be coming out very soon, but I can just put that statement out that we have some very favorable changes. The other thing that sometimes is not as emphasized, and I think we touched on this very briefly, but the the self-reported gut, we call it, you know, the gut disturbance index, you know, when people comment on their gut health, just based on how they feel. Oh, I have stomach issues. Oh, I, you know, my, my stomach doesn't deal well when I eat that, or, you know, I'm having some, you know, GI upset and disturbance. You know, people talk about it and refer to it a lot, but actually being able to document this, there's not a lot of data right now that's out there that is examining how different dietary regimens impact our GI you know, at least in this case, the self-reported GI disturbance. And what we were able to show in as little as four weeks, and here's what I'm, you know, bringing this up for, is because in as little as four weeks, we can manifest significant improvement in the, the GI response that people feel. And we were able to show that in the four-week study that we published in the Frontiers in Nutrition, we were able to show gastrointestinal symptoms reduced significantly in people that were following a two-day intermittent fast compared to a one-day. So there's a little plug for people that do want to experiment with fasting a little bit longer. It seems to make, and that makes, I guess, you know, sense too, right? Because you're giving the gut a little bit of a, a longer time to kind of rest. And so, yes, but when we, when we compared it to the group that was calorically restricting, so they were reducing their intake as well. And as I already mentioned, 
they actually, over the course of the study period, were actually consuming slightly less on a weekly basis than the other group. We again showed that GI disturbance went down significantly in the intermittent fasting group, even though they were consuming slightly more calories over the course of a week. So there was something really staying with that intermittent fasting. Something was was really happening over the long haul in affecting a positive change in their GI disturbance symptoms. So that's worth noting. There's something very unique and beneficial, not just happening within the gut microbiome that's changing very favorable with the diversity of the gut microbiome. So the microflora, the, the different you know, genus strains and things like that that were occurring, was, it was in improving significantly, but the actual symptoms that people experienced were reducing significantly. So yeah, another massive, and I hope really valuable and important piece of scientific proof that yeah, this intermittent fasting is real. And it definitely helps both within and in our heads in terms of symptoms. That's really exciting. Do you know when you'll be publishing that work? Well, it's in the, the pipeline. And so it just hasn't, we haven't officially received the an acceptance yet for it. So we have to hold off until we get that. I'm hoping maybe, let's see, we're in June this fall. And I would be great to circle back with you and share that with you. Oh, awesome. Yeah, we'll have to have you back and talk about that and maybe have some listener Q&A specifically for you. If you're open to it, that'd be amazing. Yeah, sure. Awesome. Well, this has been absolutely so amazing. I know Vanessa and I both were just so grateful for everything that you are doing. You're just doing so much incredible work about, you know, topics that we personally are obsessed with, but that we see affecting so many people's lives. And I really, really appreciate the humanity that you bring to all of it. You've just made it so approachable and understandable. And like I said, for listeners, definitely check out Dr. Arciero's books because they are fascinating and also super motivational. <laughs> like, like they're, they're very empowering. So we just really can't thank you enough for everything that you're doing. Thank you both for having me. And thank you for the work that you're doing, Melanie. I, I'm really grateful that you provide this platform to share this information with people. So thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, it was really wonderful to get to have this follow-up discussion with you. Yes, it was amazing. I would love to have like a a debate episode, have you and like David Sinclair, <laughs> you and Walter Longo. Yeah. Have you had David on? Mm-hmm. Yeah. On my other show a few times. Yeah. I just love all the different perspectives. So it's really exciting to see your version, which is the very similar in a way to their work, but it's the focus on the protein in a way. So completely opposite at the same time. Very, very exciting. Well, I, I'll just make one comment on that and you can take it or leave it. But, you know, I, I think using human humans in their natural living environment is, is really important. And, and their work that they're doing is, is uh, amazing. I mean, it's cutting edge. It's, it's providing incredible change and you know it's revolutionary innovative and so but yeah i'm hoping that uh, yeah there's there's some type of you know mutual coming together on this because i think that in the in the perspective of the human model living and engaging with the world in an active dynamic physical way you know where we know that this these different modes of exercise play such a, a critical role in helping provide health and, and cognitive and performance benefit. I think, you know, to just 
for example, recommend you know one type of exercise, high intensity exercise is the only means to provide health is a little bit short-sighted and to suggest that, you know, given protein's role in, in cancer and certain, you know, cancer growths, I think is, yeah, I think we just need to continue to be open-minded and, and look at it from the perspective of the uh, free living out in the wild human in which we study and showing the benefits that are derived from this healthy amount of protein dispersed evenly over the course of a day so far anyway, is proven to win the day. And so, yeah, hopefully we can make those, those fi- that fine tuning of recommendation. I could not agree more. I mean, I'm just, I'm haunted by the question of longevity. And so then I'm definitely haunted by this low protein research versus real life application. And my, like intuitively, I just feel like protein is not life, but like if <laughs> feels very crucial. Well said. Yeah, no, very well said. Yeah. I think that I hope comes to the surface with all of their work eventually here, but thank you again, both of you for doing what you do. And thanks for having me on and highlighting this research. Awesome. Well, thank you. Enjoy the rest of your, your day and we will hopefully talk to you soon. Love to hear it when you're finished with it. Oh yes. We'll send it to you for sure. Have a great day. Thanks. Thank you, Paul. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, everything we discussed on this show does not constitute medical advice and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. If you enjoyed the show, please consider writing a review on iTunes. We couldn't do this without our amazing team. Administration by Sharon Merriman. Editing by Podcast Doctors. Show notes and artwork by Brianna Joyner. Transcripts by Speech Docs. And original theme composed by Leland Cox and recomposed by Steve Saunders. See you next week.